page 24 to 8, section 4, and that's where we'll pick up. And why don't we open in prayer? Can I ask Dave Weeb to open in prayer? Amen. All right, so we are on eight, chapter 8, section 4. I'll read it and then we'll pick up where, uh, where it was left off two weeks ago. And this is still on the theme of Christ the Mediator. And you'll have to forgive my voice. I have no idea what's happening. My voice has been raspy for the last few days. There's no scratch, no tickle, no dryness in my voice whatsoever. But I sound like Tanya Tucker and... I apologize for that. The Lord most willingly undertook this office to discharge it. He was born under the law and perfectly fulfilled it. He also experienced the punishment that we deserved and that we should have endured and suffered. He was made sin and a curse for us. He endured extremely heavy sorrows in his soul and extremely painful sufferings in his body. He was crucified and died and remained in a state of death, yet his body did not decay. On the third day, he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered. In this body, he also ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding. He will return to judge men and angels at the end of the age. All right, and I understand uh, you guys made it through footnote 20. Is that right, Tim? I think that's what you told me. Uh, 20, or 22. finish 22 and on to 23? Okay. Okay. So let's pick it up there on that clause. He perfectly fulfilled the law, and he also experienced the punishment that we deserve and that we should have endured and suffered. And our passages there are Galatians 3. Who wants to take that? Sonia. And Isaiah 53? Howard, and First Peter 3. Keenan, I'll get you next time, Hugh. All right. So let's look at that. Sonia, go ahead in Galatians 3. Very good. Okay. You guys all remember Good Friday, Keith preached on that passage. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Right? And so this is a clear fulfillment in Christ of the Old Testament curses uh, from the Old Covenant era. And so Christ truly became a curse for us. And that motif, I think, is missing in a lot of preaching. Uh, that Christ became a curse. The man Jesus Christ bore that. He became a curse. And if you read through in Deuteronomy 28, I was 
wondering if we should read that uh, at Easter, but it's a long passage. But maybe in your own Bible reading this coming week, read Deuteronomy 28 and the covenant blessings and the covenant curses. If you obey my statutes, blessed will you be in the city, blessed will you be in the country. Your women will bear babies. Your cattle will get fat. Your vineyards will be full of fresh wine. This is all, it's going to go good for you guys. But if you break my statutes, cursed will you be in the city. Cursed will you be in the country. Your women will miscarry. You're going to experience famine. It's going to go bad for you guys. There's going to be pestilence. God's judgment is going to be on you. And Paul, in Galatians, says that Christ is the embodiment of that curse. It all finally, ultimately, lands on Jesus Christ. He takes that curse for us. And that doesn't mean that we don't see covenantal blessings and cursings still to this day. And we always have to be careful the way we talk about that. Because some people move into a kind of a prosperity gospel uh, mindset, which is absolutely false and heretical. And yet, isn't it interesting that where Protestant Christianity has gone, marriages have stayed stable, and people save money instead of spend it, and they find themselves in vocations that serve creation well. They love each other well through capitalism, which is a form of loving your neighbor with money. You provide a service, and he gives you money in exchange for that service and people all get richer, and roads get built, and cities get developed, and people design cars and airplanes and ships. That, too, is from the hand of God. Okay? It can't not go there. If there's going to be rule of law, if there's going to be stable families, if there's going to be gospel-preaching churches, uh, if there's going to be thrift and hard work, you can't not expect prosperity. That's not a prosperity gospel, but it is a general principle uh, that obedience to God's law means things go well. And we still evidently haven't learned that lesson all the way, so when we do well, like we currently are, we're very thankful to God and we double down on obeying his statutes and his laws, right? Or we get proud and arrogant and look at what I built. And we start to get self-indulgent and vandalize the things that our great-grandparents built. That's what we do. And then it hurts for a while, and then we repent. And then restoration happens, and we go through this cycle again. But in terms of the actual wrath of God, in terms of the actual personification of the curse of God, it lands on Christ, as Keith showed us a few weeks ago. Discussion on that. The curse motif. Who's going to read Deuteronomy 28 and read what it's like to get cursed by God? I'd encourage all of you to read Deuteronomy 28 this week. To be cursed by God is not a happy thing. Then let's move on. Who had Isaiah 53? Was that you, Howard? Go ahead. Okay. See the same thing here? Who is in their nature good? Who is in their nature following God? 
Nobody. Yeah. Except for the good people, right? <laughs> Nobody. Nobody follows God on their own nature. That's what it means to have a fallen nature. We run from God. We hate him. We're at war with him. We wrestle with him rather than submitting to him. And it goes poorly. Okay? And again, Christ died to take the blow uh, of that rebellion, that cursing. And then 1 Peter 3. Okay, thanks, Keenan. Okay, so here again, this idea of exchange, the righteous for the unrighteous. Our curse gets transferred to Christ and his righteousness comes to us, so there's a substitution that happens. And on that basis, he brings us to God. And again, I always like the throne room imagery where you've got the king sitting on his throne, the father on his throne ruling, his creation sovereign over it. Uh, And the son brings his friends into the presence of the throne room. We would have no access to the father except for the fact that the son has invited us to be there. And he has a legitimate right to be there. And if he brings his friends, then those friends belong there. Okay? And the Holy Spirit uh, is, uh, is the person in that relationship that conforms us to that image, that, that transfers us there. And so this act, too, is Trinitarian. Okay? So that's to explain uh, this here, that he experienced the punishment that we deserved and that we should have endured and suffered. That should have been us. It should have been us, but it was not. Discussion on that. This is Gospel 101 stuff, but because we're forgetful, we need to be reminded of Gospel 101 often, lest we stray. Then let's move on. 24, he was made sin and a curse for us. Hugh, do you want to take 2 Corinthians 5.21? Thank you. I hope this for everyone kind of is like a John 3.16 verse. It's the gospel in one verse. It's the gospel in one verse, and I think we should all commit this one to memory because every piece of the gospel is here. For our sake he made him to be sin. So Christ is made sin, even though he did not know sin, he was not guilty of it, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So again, this righteousness, that we become the righteousness of God, in this sense, in the gospel, is just a declaration Who knew that legally you are perfect at the moment of your conversion? Who's aware of that? Legally, you are 100% righteous and perfect at the moment of your conversion. Okay? That's your status. Now, is that your condition? Is that your condition? No, it's not. Caleb, do you still struggle with sin? You do. Are you entirely righteous in front of a holy God? And you're, you're correct. Yes <laughs> and no. Yeah, that's right. There's a Latin phrase that Luther used a lot. Simul justus et peccator. 
And if you have to learn Latin, this is a phrase to remember. Simul, what, do you, what word do you see there? Simultaneous, at the same time. Eustus, just et peccator. Peck, what's a peccadillo or something is impeccable that means it's perfect, right? A peccadillo is an error or a, a mistake. So Luther talked often about being at the same time just and sinner. At the same time righteous and unrighteous. And that's not a contradiction because we're looking at righteousness from two different angles here. In terms of a legal declaration, innocent. And not just innocent, but perfect. Entirely, purely righteous because you are covered in the righteousness of the Son. So in terms of a legal declaration, entirely righteous, you have nothing to fear from a holy God. In terms of our condition, well, this has to work itself out. Right? And, and it's a bare-knuckle fist fight to grow in that holiness, to become what God has declared us to be. And if you read a book like the book of Colossians, for example, especially Colossians 3, I think it is, it, it, essentially the whole message is, guys, here's what you are, now become that. <laughs> okay? This is who you are. Be what you are. Start acting like it. Okay? And if you think in terms of adoption, and, and that theme, to become what we are. Think of this. If, uh, if Howard and Tina would adopt a child into their family, is that really their child? It is. It's really their child. And Howard and Tina, I hope it's okay. You guys are tough. I hope it's okay. I can use you as an example. They're going to have customs and ways of acting in their home that are unique to their home. Right? And eventually, this child is going to have to learn, these are my parents. This is how things work around here. I'm a plet now. And guess what? Plets love Jesus. I've got to love Jesus. I'm going to have to start now in my outer behavior uh, becoming what I am. I am their son, legally, declaratively. There's no going back. And yet the rest of my life is conforming to who I am. In this house, we love Jesus. In this house, we forgive each other's sins. In this house, we repent when we hurt another person. In this house, we honor God's law. And so it's becoming what you are. That is sanctification following justification. Become what you are. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us what we are. This is our status. This is our legal standing in God's courtroom if you are in Christ. And the Bible always connects this stuff to being in Christ. There is no justification And there is no sanctification and there is no adoption apart from being in Christ. And you notice there it says that here in this verse. In him we might become the righteousness of God. There is no righteousness available anywhere else. It's in him. It's in covenant union with Christ. It's when Jesus Christ becomes your older brother. You are in covenant union with him. And so it is in him that we become the righteousness of God. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. None of this is possible apart from Christ. And I'll stop there. Can we see the difference between status and condition? Between justification and sanctification? Who God says we are and what we need to become as evidence of what we are? Discussion on this?
Righteous or innocent. Yep. And I find that an incredible comfort. Because, because that is true. Because legally, you are perfect. Legally, you are 100% righteous. Now when you fight actual sin in your life, you're doing it from victory. You're not doing it for victory. Right? You're fighting a winning battle, not a losing battle. It's, if, if we think of it in those terms, I think back to some of my struggles common to boys and think, why didn't I know this stuff back then? It sure would have been helpful in terms of my sanctification because if I'm always fighting and I'm always on a, on a, you know, a string that could tear away at any moment, you fight out of panic or you fight out of fear and to think to fight out of victory, I'm righteous. I'm perfectly justified before a holy God. Therefore, the fight is worth it because it's a winning fight. I can fight winning rather than scared of losing. Is that helpful, what Ron just mentioned? Can we see pastorally this isn't just doctrine chopping? This is pastoral? This is going to make a difference in your fight against sin, Jolene? Very good. Anyone else? Yeah, Hugh. I would more than imply that. I would stand on a roof and jump and say you cannot lose your salvation. (laughs) Okay, how do I understand that? Um, That if you have tasted the heavenly gift and so forth, if your eyes have once been enlightened, then there's no turning back. Uh, I think we can give at least two answers to that. Why don't we turn to Hebrews 6? It's verse 10, right? Four to six? Okay. finding it here. Okay. Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, 
since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Okay, so this is one of the many warning passages that you see in Scripture. This is one, but there's many warning passages in Scripture. Uh, And those warning passages are there for a reason. Um, And I think we can say a few things about them. One, uh, I would say justification is clearly something that cannot be lost. Right? Nothing can snatch you from the love of God. Nothing can, can take you from his hand, neither... Uh, you know, things above or things beneath, right? Toil or, or nothing can remove us from his hand. Um, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, right? Those whom he foreknew, he uh, predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he glorified, he justified. So there's this golden chain. There's no additions. There's no late additions, okay? Uh, and there's no dropouts, the group that God starts with, he finishes with. So how do we understand warning passages like this is Hugh's question, if I'm understanding you right, right? Okay. I think we can say a few things. One is uh, that warning passages uh, do different things to true and false professors. And here's what I mean by that. The guy that should be worried about this verse is not. Just think about that for a second. The guy who should be worried about this is, doesn't care. He's in. He doesn't care about his sanctification. Or he's not in, and it just none of this really means anything to him. The people that are sensitive about stuff like this are generally the people who need an arm around their shoulder and saying, you're going to make it. You're, <laughs> you're fine, right? And they tend to be spiritually sensitive, and that's good. Because I would say passages like this do what they are intended to do. Separate sheep from goats. They do that. I would say in one, in one angle of looking at it, the warning passages are the means by which God ensures that there are not dropouts. He's warning you what would happen if you did this. And it is true. If we could lose our salvation, we would. Okay, and that maybe sounds like a silly comment, but I'll say it again. If you could lose your salvation, everybody in this room would. I promise you. Every last one of you would, including me. If we could, we would. Because assurance of salvation doesn't come from us holding on to God's hand. It comes from him holding on to us. Okay? So these warning passages do what they are designed to do. To be a wake-up call to true believers, you better smarten up. It's time to quit sinning. It's time to get right with God. It's time to go make up with your dad for the way you cursed him out yesterday. It's time for you to go talk to that person at church or at work that you had a bump with. You need to do that because you don't want to go down this road. Okay. So in one sense, I would say it's in that sense, almost a hypothetical warning, the means by which the sheep and the goats are separated. Because we can't have a contradiction, ultimately, between uh, the assurance passages and the warning passages. We have to find some way to see that these are harmonious. I would also say this, uh, and this is, uh, well, you know what, because this is a little bit more involved, so I'm going to stop there. And I don't know, so far... Does that help to answer your question so far? Yeah. 
Okay. But what about all these things here, Matt? You haven't answered that. Look at these people. They have been enlightened. They have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God. Sounds like they're in, at least in some way. Okay? And I think the way we understand how covenants work can be helpful here. There are... Who knows anybody who's grown up in the church who has left Christianity? Okay. If you're a parent who is committed to fostering a Christian family? No, come on, guys. If you're a parent, who is committed to raising Christian kids? Who is not married and is going to commit to raising Christian kids and deciding that right now? Come on, guys. (laughs) Are we Christians or aren't we? Okay. Our home is a Christian home. Tanya and me are Christians, and we are a covenantally Christian home. That's not up for discussion. It's not up for negotiation. Our kids have learned from day one, this is a Christian home. We're Christians here. In this house, we love Jesus. We repent for our sins, and we trust the gospel. And we trust that the word of God is the ultimate authority. Can I make my children elect or convert them through that? No, I cannot. So here's a distinction. Covenantally, these are children who are Christians. Covenantally. Okay? And they've got all the blessings and all the advantages of being raised in a Christian context, being raised in the church. They're under the word of God. They have praying parents. Okay? They have a church family who loves them, and they have opportunities to make Christian friends, and they're hearing the preaching of the word, and they have a million advantages that other people don't have. I would say they have been enlightened. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They have shared in the Holy Spirit because they're in covenantal union with the church, even if they're not covenantally, covenantally connected to Christ. Okay, so we're not talking about the root of the heart issues here. We're talking about in some way they are in union with Christ. And there is a great warning. We talked a few weeks ago about those who know the will of the Father and disobey it receive a severe beating. And those who are ignorant get a light beating. What is that? that I think that's this. You know better. Charles Spurgeon's mother used to pray at the table in front of her children. Lord, if any of these children will walk away, it will not be from ignorance. It will be because they decided they hate you. She prayed that in front of her children. And you can bet little Charlie learned his lesson and became a powerful man of the word. I don't know about his siblings, who stayed in and who walked away.
Yeah. That's right. That's right. And what Keith said, if no, no one else heard it, was talking about it, uh, it, the Sermon on the Mount. We preached that not long ago. Where Jesus says, I never knew you. These weren't dropouts. These people named the name of Christ. They were somehow covenantally connected to the church, yet not in union with Christ. They're bringing their good works to Jesus, and Jesus says, that means nothing to me. There was no point in your life at which I knew you. And he's not saying, I wasn't aware of you as a person. (laughs) I never knew you in a saving way. There was no point at which you were mine. It's not like you were mine and then you walked away at 37 and lost your justification. You never had justification, ever, despite being in the church, despite doing the right things. So the warnings are serious. Go to Vern's question, and I want to say one more thing on this. Yeah, yeah. Great point. Vern just mentioned, if you didn't hear it, would Judas fall in here? Yes. Is Judas somehow covenantally on the outside connected to Jesus Christ? Somehow he is, clearly. He's in the inner circle. And they trust him enough to give him the money bag. Right? This guy's a deacon inside the apostles. Looks pretty good. And what does Jesus say? You were a devil from the beginning. Judas was never walking with Christ, ever. Despite having physically been present for three years, Judas was never in Christ. He was a liar and a devil from the beginning. And I'll say one more thing here on the the way external covenants work versus the root of the matter. Who's ever heard of the burnt over district in New England? In the 1730s, in the American colonies that were started by Puritan immigrants, right? so we had Dutch pilgrims moving to New York and New Jersey, and we had Anglicans moving to Virginia, and we had Presbyterians moving to other places in New England, and these colonies were all explicitly set up as physical manifestations of Christ's kingdom on earth, and I would say rightly so. I'd say the pilgrims, the, 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 the Puritans had the right view of how the world ought to work. But here's the thing. Their grandkids started to forget. And if you'd go to the good old days of New England in the 1730s, what you'd find is a bunch of boys in their high 20s that don't want to work. Fooling around with girls. Drunkenness. Bunch of lazy, worthless boys. And you'd find a bunch of girls who worked at brothels. And if you did this in Great Britain, you'd soon find out that about, about one in 20 girls in London made her living as a prostitute. And about a third of the brothels in England were dedicated to girls under the age of 14. That's the good old days, guys. And then what happened was through an act of the Holy Spirit that we cannot encapsulate or reproduce other than by his sovereign timing. An absolute torpedo hit Great Britain and the American colonies. A man by the name of George Whitfield and his friend John Wesley and very shortly after Jonathan Edwards. 
and there was hot gospel preaching. Okay? And there's reports. Whitfield used to preach in the open field to crowds of 30,000. I don't know how that works. Ben Franklin pasted it off, and he said, probably 30,000 here. Ben Franklin never converted, but Benjamin Franklin respected his friend, George Whitfield, and he'd go here and preach every time, and then he'd leave his wallet at home, because every time he'd go here, Whitfield preach, his wallet would get empty for some orphanage or rescuing some girls out of prostitution. And he left his wallet at home, and one time he heard Whitfield preach, and he borrowed money from somebody else, <laughs> because there was girls who needed to be rescued out of prostitution. Hot gospel preaching from ministers who were frowned upon by their own denomination. They got, the, the reason they were preaching in open fields is because they all lost their preaching license. Okay? Because the Church of England was far too respectable to have these roughneck, hot gospelers preach. So they just went to the field. And revival hit North America and Great Britain like you would not believe. Some historians would say the only reason Great Britain did not fall into revolution like Russia and France did was because of the Puritans. That was the one thing that kept Great Britain from descending into bloody war, like so many other nations did. And people were converted, and things happened. And a hundred years later, we started to forget again. And where that hot gospel preaching went is today called the Burnt Over District. Because the religion of the grandparents despite God having worked several times in a mighty way, these people think they're Christians because they were born in New Hampshire. Okay? My grandparents literally come from Scotland. Okay? And I was literally born in New Hampshire. Of course I'm a Christian. That thinking starts to set over again. And today the hardest place to get the gospel into anywhere in America is in the burnt over district of New England. I could make guesses about what I think is going to happen to southeastern Manitoba because I think a lot of the factors are correct. I don't doubt this could be, in a hundred years, some of the hardest soil in North America because we all have low German names, guys. Like, we're literally, we're literally low German. I literally grew up on a farm. Of course I'm a Christian. Okay? We've got to be very careful about that kind of stuff, the external covenantal stuff versus the heart of the matter in the heart. Because people that walk away knowingly like this, the prognosis is usually pretty rough. Okay? God's sovereign spirit can and does work in amazing ways. But if you want to see a person who is callous to the gospel, it's a person who knew what they were doing when they walked away. Those are very hard people to reach. Yes. Okay, very good. Did anyone hear Don? If you're going to read Deuteronomy 28 this week, and you should also read Deuteronomy 8, because that tells you how much in that chapter, I think what you're getting at is how much Israel earned her spot. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep, amen. So... That all is hopefully in somewhat of service to your question. I don't know if that helps enough, if that gets you started down the road. But I would say justification is something we cannot lose. 
Because if we could, we're saying it's dependent on us. It failed. Very good. Right. Yep. Amen. Yep. Alfred and then Ron. Maybe that would be far better, wouldn't it? At least they know it. There's no game playing. That would be far better. That would be far better. Yeah. Ron. Amen. Yeah. Yeah, Ron's sitting up front here, so he just said... To lose objective justification would mean the Holy Spirit has to leave us. But that's a kind of divorce on God's part, which doesn't work. God hates divorce. He's not going to... Well, and here's another way of looking at it. And this sounds so self-evidently obvious. I remember the first time I heard it, I kind of chuckled. How long does eternal life last for, guys? Yeah, <laughs> I had eternal life until 20 years, right? My, my lifetime warranty is voided because the lifetime of my toaster ran out, so the lifetime warranty, well. Yep, John 10. Yep, yep. Jesus loses none of what the Father gives him. Yep. So, so we have to say yes to objective justification that we can have actual assurance. Here's the other thing. The Bible teaches, I do believe, that we can have assurance. People struggle with assurance. That doesn't mean they don't have it. It means they're struggling to to get it. It doesn't mean they're not justified when they're struggling. But if justification could be lost, think about this logically, nobody can have assurance of salvation. Not one person. What you could have is the assurance that if I would die right now, I'm saved. But you could have no assurance of future salvation because tomorrow you might throw it all away. In an Arminian conception, you can, you can only have assurance right now at this very moment. But there's no assurance of future salvation if you can drop yourself out. You have to be good enough. And if we're saved by grace, how much bad stuff do we have to do to get unjustified? And if bad stuff can unjustify me, how much good stuff do I have to do to stay justified? 
Yep. I heard, and I found it helpful at the time when I heard it, and then I realized, no, pastorally, this is not going to help me at all. It's going to make it worse. I, at one point in my life struggling with assurance, I had a minister explain to me that God's grace is like an umbrella that shields us from sin, from judgment. And as we obey God, we move ourselves under that umbrella, under the protection of God, And as we sin, we move ourselves out. And it sounded helpful at first until I realized there is, there's no hope. There's no hope in that. I can walk out tomorrow. There is no hope. And I got myself under the cover of the umbrella. So at what point are we kind of winking or crossing our fingers when we say that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Well, and that's good because the hidden assumption behind this is we're all born under the umbrella and then we can move ourselves out. What's that? That's exactly backwards. You're right, Bill. We're born outside and Christ puts us under the umbrella and then he makes sure we stay there. And if we're getting presumptuous and hard-hearted, he might let us taste the rain a little bit outside as his means of warning us. But the cover comes from Christ, and it is unshakable. Yep. Joanne. Okay. Okay, what does that mean? And you're talking about in terms of outward appearance versus the Christ died for sinners. <laughs> And, yeah. Okay. If you, that's a good sign that you can say I'm a sinner, because hardened people tend to be good people. That, yeah, and they do more good than bad. So covenantally, we're all here. We're all Christians in title. Everyone in this room. I hope everyone in this room is justified, but I have no way to know that. Okay. There is a warning for Christians. In Hebrews 6, be careful. You might not be who you think you are if you're just going through the external motions. But if you know you are a sinner, if you know that there's no hope found outside of Christ, and this isn't just doctrine in your head, but this is you actually grabbing on, right? Well, and I should really say, it, it's Christ putting this in your hand, this salvation, and you see your heart has been changed. You've got a heart of flesh. You hate your sin, not because of the trouble it brings into your life, but you hate your sin, not the consequences of it. You hate the sin. 
In The Religious Affections, a book by Jonathan Edwards, he talks about some of the kind of Arminian Methodist folks that he was ministering together with. And he says, do I have a better conception of total depravity than they do? Yes, I do. I have, a, I have a more biblical understanding of the nature of original sin than my Methodist friends do. So is that a good sign of my salvation? Yep. Okay. Are you proud of the fact that you know you're more depraved? Yep. Hmm. Wow. Now I'm in worse shape than them again. And has that realization that I am the chief of all sinners, is that something now that I've realized this again the second time helps me grab on tighter? Yep. Am I more, for, am I more proud than my friend John Wesley again? Yes. If we're going to look for assurance in our hearts, there is no bottom of the skins on that onion. There's always another layer to tear away. And I have struggled with this so deeply when I was in my depression that there's always another layer of lies and deceit and crap in my heart. And I could never get to the bottom of it. And here I'll say John Piper actually, quoting Edwards, I found very helpful. He said, sometimes those moments of assurance don't come when we're looking for it. It all of a sudden comes, you're reading the Bible, and all of a sudden it just grips you. Christ did this for me. He did this for me. And you're not even looking for assurance, but it just hits you, right? And I think the lesson is we don't go in here to look for assurance because we lie to ourselves in ways that we don't, and we're so accustomed to our lies that we don't even think about the lies we tell ourselves. So I would encourage anyone in the battle of assurance, don't look into your heart. That's the septic tank that got you in trouble in the first place. Look outside of yourself. Look to Christ. Look to the promises in Scripture. And if we know in our hearts that we are sinners and there is no hope outside of Christ, that's where our assurance ultimately comes from. Looking inside is just going to be another layer of things we find that we need to repent of. Anglican Bishop Beveridge said that even our repentance needs to be repented of because it's proud and imperfect. And I think he's right. Our repentance is proud and imperfect. But we're saved by faith, which is something I don't produce. It's something Christ puts in your hand so that when you are reading your Bible, you say, yes, this is for Jolyn Sawatsky. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your promises. Thank you that you are kind. Thank you that you do offer us salvation and also assurance. And I thank you that your gifts and your calling are irrevocable. Lord, I thank you that if you start something in our hearts, you promise that you will see it through to completion. Lord, help us to lean into those promises. Help us to see that our last name or our upbringing or our church affiliation or our knowledge of doctrine or our knowledge of our own depravity, Lord, these are all things that don't save us. Lord, help us to run to you. 
Lord, I pray that you would put faith in our empty hands for each one here. Lord, feed us through your word. Feed us through your promises and your gospel. Feed us in scripture. Feed us as we fellowship with each other here at church. Feed us when we take communion. Feed us through ordinary conversations. Lord, feed us. Fill our hands. Lord, and for each one here this morning that struggles with assurance. Lord, if that struggle is because they don't know you in a saving way, then, Lord, arrest them. Make their lives uncomfortable. Remove all joy. Remove all satisfaction. Remove all peace from their lives. Lord, pursue them with your hound of heaven that they would come to know you and that there would be no peace until they rest in you. Lord, and for those of us who do know you in a saving way, but struggle with assurance, struggle with knowing what's truth and what's lies in our hearts, Lord, I pray that you would help us to get over ourselves. Help us to quit looking inside. Help us to see that the gospel comes outside of us. It comes from an external man, the God-man. Lord, help us to look outside of ourselves through Scripture to you and that we would say, yes, this is for me. I'm safely in the hands of the Lord Jesus. Lord, do that for each one of us here this morning. You've done it before, you can do it again. And we ask you now, Lord, do it again. Give us saving faith and give us assurance. And give us hearts that are ready to repent, ready to worship you this morning. Pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.